I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Today on the Executives Exchange, we welcome Timothy Walbert, Chairman, President, and Chief Executive Officer of Horizon Therapeutics. Tim sits down with guest moderator, Linda Imonti, Office Managing Principal at KPMG. Together, they discuss the growth of Horizon Therapeutics, the importance of engaging with your staff in the community, and how Tim's personal journey with health and wellness have guided his career. Good afternoon, Tim. So good that we're finally here. And I want to kind of kick off first and chatting with you up to this session, I had an opportunity to really learn more about kind of your journey. And so I wanted to just start off kind of sharing that maybe with the group on, you know, you took the CEO role in 2008, but but before that and up to that point and past that, you have a whole history and journey around being the patient and the caregiver and really kind of sharing with this group, how has that motivated you and how does that continue to motivate you on an ongoing basis in the role you're in and with the organization? Well, thanks and, and great to be here. Being a patient is, is something, especially with uh, autoimmune and a rare disease, is it's a lifetime journey and, and one that I've experienced and had the fortune of working in an industry where I've taken many of the medicines that I've been involved with. And it's something that has always given me a, a different perspective and, and it attracted to me to working in autoimmune diseases. I was involved in the development and launch of Humira uh, and many other uh, autoimmune or, or arthritis related medicines. And it just gives you a different perspective. And as a leader of a company that is focused in the healthcare space, I, I think seeing things through a patient's eyes uh, definitely um, changes how you run a business and, and how you bring expectations to the team uh, in, in really understanding the journey a patient goes through. Because it, as much as we love the medicines that, that we make and sell, um, they may not be doing to the patient what we think they are. So we may think we have a medicine that makes a great difference for a patient, uh, but in reality, it's helping but not changing a patient's life. So patients have many other things going on in their lives and, and you have to have really a real context and understanding of what that patient goes through, not just how your medicine works in that patient. And, and then I had the unfortunate uh, reality of having my son diagnosed with a, a rare uh, and an autoimmune disease as well over the last year and, and becoming a caregiver. And, and uh, you assume you, you know what it's like for someone to uh, have a child or, or a family member uh, who has a, a rare or autoimmune disease, but to go through it and experience all the challenges in the healthcare system and getting medicines and um, getting into treatment uh, a whole new perspective that uh, I think makes me better at what I do, and that um, it takes a lot of those assumptions away that uh, you know you really have to factor in, especially with children, that their parents have to play, and, and caregivers of anyone with sick have to play a key role in their treatment. Yeah, and, and I think an interesting perspective to A, have been the patient yourself, but then as the caregiver, right, and the um, ongoing kind of um, role that you play and the knowledge you also have to gain as a caregiver. So if you hadn't gone through it yourself as a patient too, I think there's an understanding that could come to being a caregiver of 
those that haven't been through it already, yet they're a caregiver. And, and you look at uh, we're in rare diseases and, and one assumes you find out what you have and you get treated and you find a pathway. Yet there's 7,000 rare diseases and only about 350 or 400 of them actually have approved treatments. And I went through this myself uh, when I was in my 20s, I saw over 100 different physicians and I was always at the end of every visit or series of visits categorized as an interesting patient, which is code for, we don't know what you have. Uh, and that is something that so many patients go through, even with a standard autoimmune disease, like Humira treats in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and then you think to a rare disease that even your physician you're seeing may not understand your symptoms and may not be able to come up with a solution. That's a real challenge. And, and that's something that uh, fortunately my son um, I knew what he had, and I was able to get him to treatment you know, 10 years faster than I was myself. But it, it, to go through it yourself, you understand that it's not just about having a medicine. It's about helping people get diagnosed earlier so they can actually get on treatments or get a better diet or whatever is required to improve their lives. Let's talk a little bit about you know, the perseverance. So, so you came through that experience and also during your time there leading the organization. Now you've transition to a caregiver also, but it takes a lot of perseverance to really build a company, especially in the life sciences space. So share with us some of the challenges you've really faced in growing Horizon. Well, in, in any company, you go through a phase as a biotech company where you lose money. We lost money for the first probably five or six years. Uh, and we spent many weeks where we didn't know when the next paycheck or, or money was coming from, so we couldn't pay people. We had a situation in early 2010 where uh, half of our employees, uh, which was eight, uh, stayed as contractors because we couldn't afford to make them employees until we actually raised more money. And you know, we probably had four or five times we were out of money at the end of the week and didn't know when that next uh, payment from, from an investor was actually going to hit our accounts. And, and, and you have to really see the big picture and, and continue to fight when, um, getting medicines through the FDA, getting through the manufacturing process. We see so many stories today of medicines that prove their efficacy, yet they get rejected because you can't manufacture them effectively. There's so many aspects that go into bringing a medicine to market uh, that uh, you have to really see forward and, and understand that you want to actually bring these medicines forward to patients and continue to fight uh, because um, most medicines take a lot longer to develop than you may have anticipated. It takes more money and running a company always takes more money, more people and more time. Uh, and you wind up in a situation where you have to make a lot of tough decisions and you're not able to do everything that maybe at bigger companies, I worked in pharma companies for 14, 15 years before running small companies. And a lot of things we take for granted in big companies are what we're desperate for like having money and in big companies, how much of my budget, how many million can I get in my budget? Whereas when you're running a small company, it's um, how many hundred thousand can I get? And you, need, you don't need to find someone to do most things. You actually have to do it yourself. Uh, so it's a, an entirely different dynamic. And, and you also need people that are going to have that shared purpose and, and be in it for the long run and, and understand that short-term there's gonna be some real sacrifices. Our chief medical officer uh, worked uh, free for us for, for almost two years uh, and just willing to help out and do whatever he could and then ultimately came on board and, 
has been with me through the entire journey. Now, you also, during that time, built an entire R&D organization. You were talking about the process you go through with new medicines and getting things to market and also a, a manufacturing facility. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, in the R&D organization that you built, um, that enables you to do even more um, kind of in the forefront and on the edge. Can you talk a little bit more about that for the group and the importance of that for you as a, as a life sciences organization? For us, uh, the initial focus was just around driving commercial excellence and driving sales. In fact, third quarter, we had our first billion dollar sales quarter and, and Tepeza recently launched medicine, had a billion dollars this year. So great commercial success, but the lifeblood of our industry is coming up with solutions. I remember picking my son up from practice one day and uh, football practice and I was driving him home and he said, dad, are you ever going to come up with uh, uh, something to treat our disease? You know, and that's kind of one of those things that, uh, you know, you think you have all this success, you're helping patients and your son, you know, basically challenges you with something, you know, you don't have a solution for, you know, and that's what R&D is all about is, is finding, um, solutions to unmet needs that there are no other solutions. Most rare diseases have no approved medicine, which means by definition, we're embarking on new grounds, which you need to have very creative trial designs. You have to have patients involved and hear the patient voice. Um, but it is something that takes a lot of time. You know, medicines take anywhere from eight to 15 years to get through the entire process of you know, being identified and, and discovered and then ultimately developed through phase one, two, and three. And, uh, submitted to a regulatory agency in U.S. or around the world. And, and then you have the whole manufacturing process where if you're in biologics or, or certain um, therapeutic areas, a lot of cell therapies and gene therapies today, the manufacturing process is as complex as the development process of a medicine. Uh, and all of this on average, there's various reports. Um, most R&D projects fail. Uh, I think somewhere in the 70 plus percent of of medicines that are actually started into human trials never actually make it to market. So when you look at all that cost of failure has to be factored into the cost to develop a successful medicine. So on average, many of the reports that come out of Tufts and other areas show that anywhere from two to $3 billion is spent for every approved medicine to make it to market. Uh, so there's a lot of risk involved and you have to be able to uh, really adapt, change and realize that when you're in rare diseases, you don't have clinical trial design that's been used in many other patients. So you have to take a lot of risk and find different ways to really get your medicine to work. So it brings tons of challenges and it brings a lot more risk uh, to what you're doing and also to investors. Yeah. Uh, you've said a couple different comments about this. You referenced, you know, a team working together on the R&D, a team engaged and committed. You referenced shared purpose, um, which leads me back to that the horizon really has a reputation for its culture. And part of that culture is that shared purpose. But Share with us some of the, the things that have been put in place. You know, what are the key ingredients? I mean, some I'm hearing is the history of how you were built and what everybody's been through together. And there's a shared kind of history and track you've all been through, a lot of you growing this organization. But what are the key ingredients to really a collaborative culture? And, and how do you maintain that culture? Because you also mentioned 
a great quarter you just came through. So you've got to maintain that culture too as you grow. So how have you managed to do both of those? And what ingredients do you think make those up for you? Well, I, I think uh, it, one, it's it's not easy. And, and as you grow, the, the thing people generally come to small companies for is to get away from bureaucracy and a lot of the things that go into um, large companies and, and process and, and slowness. And, and they're looking for you know, basically taking that all away and having a more free flowing and, and enjoyable work experience. I, I think shared purpose is critical in that I was just reading on, I think it was on LinkedIn yesterday or day before, where 82% of Generation Z was a survey of 5,000 people. It said that purpose is the, the main reason they go to work. And I think if you look at the employee base and where we are today in a society where we talk about the great resignation and not being able to fill many jobs, whether that's labor job or business jobs, you know, you have to compete for talent and having a company that has real purpose matters to employees in a way that I don't think it ever has before. Uh, and, you know, for us, we are patient focused. And some examples are when it comes to working with patient advocacy groups, we are a small company, we've been, been growing. And just last year, there was a survey done of all companies that work in rare disease or in autoimmune diseases and look at the advocacy organizations. And two years ago, we weren't even in the survey. And last year, we're in the survey and across every measure, and that's against the Pfizer's and Merck's and all the large companies, we are rated one, if not two, in every category. And a lot of that is, if you look at our advocacy organization, there's many people who are parents who have children with rare diseases. They're caregivers. They're their patients themselves. And they understand that when you work with patient advocacy organizations, it's not the money you give. You know, your time is as valuable as your money. And I think at Horizon, people really care about the patients. They are a patient, as I am, and, and they really do care about the outcome. And we have a, a medicine that we were studying for a rare neurologic disease probably three, four years ago, and it failed a phase three trial. And four years later, we're still working with that advocacy group as if it was successful, you know, because people really care about patients who have that rare disease. Uh, so it's something where people really care about the diseases we're in, the patients that they interact with. And that's a really core tenant of people working here. How do you create an inclusive environment that embraces all employees and provides them the tools for success, regardless of personal limitations? And how do you train other leaders to embody the same values? Well, that is, I think, a real challenge, but opportunity. If, if you look at most startup companies, everyone hires their friends or people they worked with and know, and you try to survive. And then as you grow, you get past your friends and you have to hire other people. And, and that's where uh, you need to be broader and, and more diverse and more inclusive. And, and I think it's important to, first thing is being aware. You know, I think unconsciously, uh, many people will continue to do the same thing over and over and, and having awareness of, of what's important. Uh, and uh, just when it comes to interview slates, you have to make sure that you're working. And so many people say, well, you're not hiring a diverse talent pool. And they say, well, we're not getting the, the people that apply are the ones we hire. Well, no, you haven't done a good enough job of going and getting recruiters that represent various diverse groups. And I think it, it is also important to you know, make sure that you're being fair. Uh, the last two years, we, we did a, a study on, on gender uh, pay, on 
looking at fairness across whether it's diversity, across gender, across our entire organization. And, and we found that women and minorities and other are paid equally for the same job work as males or non-minorities. Uh, and that's something that a lot of companies aren't willing to actually do that work and share it. And it's really important. That's something right from the beginning. Uh, we always made sure if you come in at a level, it doesn't really matter what your background is relative to gender or race. It's what is the job you're doing and you should be paid a similar amount. And that's been something that we consciously focused on from the beginning versus having to be reminded that, hey, we now have to look at it because it's important in the industry. Well, when we did the study, we knew what the results would be because we always treated people the right way from the beginning. And I think having that tenet of just do the right thing. Uh, and we have never had a program that says we want a certain percentage female. 70% of our R&D organization is female. That wasn't by design. That was how our organization hired that talent. Uh, so I think that when you have people that are given the freedom to hire the best people and not told to, you, know, you need to have this particular group, I think you have the right people and they'll get to the right place um, on their own. And, and, and we've got uh, you know, very good representation and, and gender diversity uh, without having to force it on people, which means people are trained the right way. We're going to the right slates and, and making sure that we're getting access to the right diversity of people. I think the biggest challenge is if you keep looking in the same place, you'll keep getting the same people. And that's where sometimes it goes down the wrong path. What, what would you suggest to leaders who are looking for new ways to increase culture, sense of belonging and purpose? and retain and motivate talent? And what are some of the leaders getting right and what are they getting wrong? And I think, Tim, you just outlined a number of things your organization has done in, in order to address that. But just so we make sure we address this question too, is there anything you wanna to add to that about what other organizations might miss or do wrong that gets them off, you know, that you've learned over the years, like, oh, I need to go adjust that and let, let's go a different well, direction. Were there any learnings in your kind of DEI and your focus in that area? Well, I think in, in a lot of areas, it's, uh, you don't have to be big to do it. And, and it come, I think corporate social responsibility also fits in this. Uh, you know, a lot of companies say, well, we don't have enough money to get involved in, in, in supporting the community. Well, we went and, and had people give their time. We went down to Perspective uh, Charter School and one of them in Chicago that we worked with, uh, and we painted a fence. The paint didn't cost a lot of money. It took people's time to go down there and paint, you know, the whole schoolyard, the whole property, and, and go in and, and build a room. And, and I think there's ways that you can, you can donate time. And, and also, it's, it's about, you know, listening to people. I think a lot of people come from you know, large corporate environments that are very hierarchical and, and they have expectations of what everyone and everyone role, how it works. And, and I think you have to continue break down those barriers and continue to do the right thing. And you shouldn't be doing the right thing just because it's someone who looks or feels or acts like you, you do, uh, which means you have to empower and hold your teams accountable to do that. And I think that often we, by the time something happens, if a company or an individual is doing the wrong thing, um, everyone else knows it long before you've made that decision. Um, so typically that's had a negative cultural impact. And I think it, it's all about raising awareness and, and focusing on it right from the beginning. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. 
Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. I want to keep going a little bit with the employee thing because I know one of the things that's so important to you and the organization as a whole is really making sure that regardless of tenure there, that you bring the the whole group along with you in your success. Right. And that you really focus that it's for all when, when you are successful. Can you share a little bit about how you've done that and made sure that you're bringing the whole group along, right? Through well, the success. I, I think there are a number of things that you can do for everyone in your business. Uh, uh, we, we have never excluded any group from getting equity. You know, it doesn't matter if you are, you know, working in, in scheduling meetings or if you're in R&D or at the lowest level, every person in the company is going to get equity and share in the success of the company. I'm on the board of, and been on the board of some companies and seen a lot of companies that say, well, you have to be a director level to get equity. Well, I just think you're excluding a, a key part of your organization that makes you successful. Uh, so, so areas that you can control, like equity, should be shared among everyone. You know, if there's a bonus for executives, everyone should share in a bonus. Uh, so, I think that those are some simple things that shouldn't be difficult to do, but people, you know, tend to not think through it fully and and say, "Well, I don't need to give it because they don't expect it." Well. That's not the reason you do it. Uh, when, when we first started building internationally, people came and said, well, they don't, in, in certain parts of Europe, they don't expect to get stock options or equity. So it's not an expectation there. And I said, well, it doesn't matter. That's what we do. So we give everyone, doesn't matter where in the world you are or what office you're in or what role you have, you're going to get equity and we're not going to give you less just because you happen to live in Ireland or Germany um, versus the US where it's a standard practice. Uh, so I think that's something that shows people that, you know, you're getting treated fairly and it doesn't matter if your local market happens to be different. We want to treat you fairly across the world. You know, and another thing that, that we do is when it comes to giving back and corporate social responsibility, we have sales reps, people all over the country in various different um, countries around the world. Uh, and everyone cares about something different. You know? So a number of years ago, we, we did two things. We, we basically said, if you want to give money, give to a what you believe to be important, whatever group is. If you want to help the Arthritis Foundation, you want to help something, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Association, then do it and we'll match that. And, and the other thing we wanted is people to give their personal time in their community. So if you're a, a sales rep in, in Memphis, then go take a personal day. And we have everyone gets their it's personal day where you get a day off to go work in the community and you know, allowing people to do what's important to them, not what we tell them is important. So some of these things I think go a long way to really defining your purpose as an individual, how you wanna give back and trying to link that into what the company's purpose is. Right, and volunteering and being out there and active in the community has become so much more important even today than it was 20 years ago for all of those who work in our organizations our focus is much more or, or kind of come up in that area where people want to give their time as much, if not more, right? 
than just their dollars. They want to be a part of the outcome, right? Not be distant or arm's length from the outcome. So that's changed a lot. I know in our organization for our people, and I'm sure it has in yours. And I think that you've seen a lot of this even around corporate governance and, and people debating what is the role of a company? We're a public company and, and we can give you that talking point of, I'm here to represent shareholders and, and I report to a board who represents those shareholders. Uh, but in reality, we're in a different world today where I'm responsible to making sure employees have the best experience. And, and we're, we're in healthcare and we talk about all the challenges of people in, in healthcare and getting access to healthcare. If we didn't have a really good healthcare plan for our employees, it'd be pretty hypocritical. You know, so things like we've done is for the last three years, we, even though the costs of our healthcare have increased, we've absorbed those costs. We don't charge employees any more money because, you know, you have to work within the spirit of, you know, we're in the healthcare industry. You have to try to give back uh, and, and do those things. But I think the expectations of companies has definitely changed. You know, we have to worry about and care more about our communities, our employees, the patients we represent and shareholders. And, and I think that there's been a lot of talk about you know, what is even legally the obligation of a company? Jamin Diamond from JP Morgan, you know, has, has, has a large voice given you know, the scale of JP Morgan has talked a lot about, we need to change what's really written down in our mandates as an organization, you know, to serve multiple different customers or people. And, and I think we're, we're seeing that change. And, and as I mentioned earlier, if you look at Generation Z and Millennials, it's just expected that not only will you do all these things, but you also have a voice. And, and we see so many social issues and, and civic issues and you know, things going on, shootings in, in, in schools. Uh, what happened in Michigan on, on, uh, the other day is just terrible to, to go through a, a high school and 11, 11 people shoot, shot and, and four passed away. It's, uh, it's devastating. And you know, so we have to be able as organizations, uh, we used to sit there and just let, let it happen and not comment. And now the expectation as a leader of a company, you have to have a point of view. You know, if there's a, an issue going on around unfair treatment of a certain race, race, there's issues against Asian Americans, Black Americans, companies are expected to stand up and fight for people um, that are represented within our own employee base. Yeah, if we push that a little bit further face outwards into the community, do you think that organizations today are doing enough um, in the communities around them? And how would you recommend that they build and grow uh, more commitment and involvement in their local communities? Well, I, I think that doing community-based work, corporate social responsibility has generally been seen as a, a corporate function. And as you have money, you want to you know, get back. And, and it's basically been a really good talking point. And I think we're in a world that um, expects it to be more than that, that it really is part of your purpose and your mission. And, and if we're here to help patients get better with our medicines, the communities we work are also have many of those patients. And, you know, I, I got a note mailed to me the other day, uh, I opened up 
someone actually wrote a letter, which was kind of shocking. I hadn't gotten one of those in a while, um, who drives by our office every day. And she said, well, I drive by your office every day. I just wanted to thank you for all the trees you planted. We planted 350 trees around our campus because we wanted to fit more into the natural environment. And she said, I now enjoy driving by here every day. You know, so, you know, a little thing, but she lives down the street and appreciated that, you know, we actually did something that might improve, you know, the the area around her. So uh, it's it means something different to everyone, but I think you have to understand one of the things is people around and we have signs up on the buildings and people don't want to see bright lights all the time. So you turn your lights off and respect your neighbors. And there's just little things that you do that I think become important uh, as you represent who you are as a company. You know, as we look out into the communities, and, and I know that with some of my board roles I have and other roles I've done, and then with you and your role, we know that there is a set of communities out there that is underserved, right, by our industry as a whole in medicine. And um, I spoke about this a couple of years ago when I was uh, chairing the Heartball. And it's so important that we start to shift and change that. Can you talk a little bit about how you have focused on the underserved communities and how maybe other organizations might begin to further advance their focus on the underserved communities. Well, I think the, the first thing you have to do is, is stand up and, and fight when they're either attacked or disadvantaged. And you, know, you have a lot of racism that's been going on in this country and in various terms. You know, I was sitting with a, a person from Ireland, talk about lack of awareness. This person was describing to me what racism meant between a person from Ireland versus a person in England. And what I thought was a, a joke around the heritage of Ireland was actually seen as racism by the Irish person versus the English person that, that in that dialogue. And, and it means different things to different people. But I think the, the lesson for me is we all have to have awareness of different people and different points of view. You know, if you talk about Ireland and you know, they, they had a potato, one thinks potatoes. And if you talk about that in, in a funny way and how challenged that country was, you know, that's going to offend people, especially for the people in the UK who deprived them at a time where a million people died from the a famine that, that existed. So it was a great lesson for me that, you know, what racism looks and feels different to every different group and environment you're in. And we should all have a responsibility to stand up and defend. And when the things happen in Minnesota or in other areas, you know, we as a company had to take a stand and come out and go against you know, actions that aren't about Black, white, or, or Asian, or other. It's just about human decency. And I think that uh, there's been a lot of anti-Asian activities that have occurred given with the pandemic. And you know, we had an employee that was being harassed in one of the local communities, and we stepped up and said, we'll pay for you to move to an area that you're more comfortable with. Uh, so I think you have to step up and try to help where you can and, and not accept it. And, and I think companies, you know, people used to talk about Chicago and Michael Jordan, and you know he had all his advertising and would never talk about a tough topic because maybe one of the advertisers wouldn't support it. Well, that, that's not acceptable. You know, we have to have a strong point of view and employees expect that. Of yeah, and I think we have to, we have to take things head on. Right. We're no longer in a time where we can sit back and not take certain topics on head on that we used to drive around. Right. As organizations, I agree with you 100 percent. Do you have a mentor um, or a certain breaking point that made you comfortable being transparent about your own personal experience? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think I was. 
35 when I was willing to first share it. And up until that point, I always feared uh, that uh, it would be used against me. You know, and the, the interesting thing about many autoimmune diseases is these are things going on. Your body's attacking itself, you know. So in, until it gets really bad, like if you see a patient, an older patient with rheumatoid arthritis before medicines like Humira, you know, their fingers and you know, the disfiguring and deformity was, was very present. But, but in many people, you just can't see it, which means you can act and you can hide it. And I did that extremely well. Uh, and I guess I got to the point where I was running a large business and, and felt like, well, they can't use it against me now. And, and I can talk about it. We, we had a situation at a manager's meeting at the company I was at, and they said, well, talk about yourself. And I talked about it for the first time. And it was, uh, it was really fascinating. It, uh, you, you never want to, when, when you have diseases, you never really want to talk about yourself because uh, most of these diseases that are autoimmune or chronic or rare diseases, there is no cure and it's not going away. You know? So then you have to put yourself in a position to not be a victim and not be use that as, as how people think about you. Because people get defined by diseases or someone, you look at these poor kids that went through this situation in Michigan, their lives are now defined by that trauma they went through. You know? So as a patient with several autoimmune diseases, if I didn't take Humira, I wouldn't be able to work. I'd be on disability sitting at home. You don't want to be defined by those situations because 25 years ago, life would have been different for me. I have the benefit that something like Humira, I could actually develop it. And I've taken it for 18 years myself and been able to live a much different life than I would have otherwise. Do you feel that over the years too, as we've moved through the years, it's different today when we talk about things that might be different for each one of us as individuals? Oh, yeah. It's, work environment. Well, I think that it, it's much more accepted. And I guess when you look at being part of any group that isn't normal, as we call it, your biggest fear is that everyone's going to look at you that way. And, and as society has become more accepting, uh, it's easier. We have a corporate campaign that we rolled out about a month ago, and it's called the It's Personal Campaign. It talks about me and and my disease and, and dealing with that as a, as a patient, but also as a, as a parent and what my wife and I go through. But it's something that we have so many people within the company that have the same stories. So yeah. that campaign is not about me. It's about me as the first voice, but it's going to be followed by 20, 30, 40 other people who are going through the same situation I'm going through. We just haven't heard their voice yet and trying right. to empower people to speak up. And maybe there's someone else out there that can help you in a different way. Yeah, oh. you talk about things, the better chance you can actually get some help from it. Yeah, it lets them start to open up and bring that part of themselves, right, also to the environment, which I think uh, benefits us all in our, our organizations when people can bring our whole self. Well, right? people make a lot of assumptions. And, and when you're transparent, not only about things within work, but who you are, I think it, it can change that environment that you can have honest conversations with people that may not be easy, but they're authentic because you're not hiding who you are as a, for me as a patient. Right. Right. Agreed. Next question is, uh, talks about how you are often leading initiatives to support the community which we chatted about, um, but specific reference to providing the seed funding to help launch Governor Pritzker's, I just lost it, <laughs> COVID relief funds. And the question is really around why is support and supportive social issues so important, which we covered. 
maybe we could talk a little bit about those specific decisions around COVID and maybe how the organization has worked through that and gotten through that. Well, it's interesting in that you know, I've always looked at it simply as you try to do the right thing. Uh, I'll give an example. I, I was running a business, I'll, uh, I'll save the company name, but uh, we had a person, a sales representative who got cancer. And I just told them, fly their family in and whatever it is, get them hotel rooms. And I got a lot of trouble at my company for doing that. And you, know, you shouldn't be able to spend that. There's programs to support them. And I didn't care. And, and you know that impacted me as, as a leader, not so positively. Um, but, but I think that I didn't care. I would have paid for it myself. And, you know, we've had a situation here where, unfortunately, you know, you get bigger, you have people pass away. And, you know, we go in and ask the family, what help do you need? We pay for their funerals. I don't care about what benefits and programs we have. You just step in and see what the family needs and you just do it. And, and when it came to the pandemic, we took the same approach. You know, March 16th, we're all sitting at home and, and I texted J.B. Pritzker, who's the governor here, and said, hey, how can we get involved and, and help? And, you know, he said, hey, I'll put you in touch with my folks. And, and then we got on the phone and, and said, well, we don't really have a, a mechanism right now to just give a donation. And that he reached out to his sister and started a whole group and said, all right, let's put money into that and help them you know, really get it started. And soon after that, many of the other uh, local companies jumped into it and and it just needed that you know, initial reach out, didn't know what the heck to do, but just said, hey, how can we help? And you know, at the time, JB just said, hey, let's, let's figure it out. And, and John Conrad, who runs Illinois Bio locally, uh, stepped up and said, well, I'll coordinate it across you know, our industry. And, and it just kind of went from there. And I think sometimes you just have to reach out and say, I'm willing to help and not have an answer. And we just kind of worked with groups and figured out along the way. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of us during that time trying to figure out kind of how to step up and where to be. And there was, you know, a number of good funds set up that really helped around our community yeah. and helped through um, different organized, you know, through United Way and others that really, I think, have has gone back into the community. And who would have thought that we would have been, you know, a year and a half later, right? Well, I think it, it changed how we have to communicate and interact with employees. We started doing, I think it was every other week, you know, calls. I would sit in my basement and do video conferences with the whole company. And then we started seeing people get getting let go. And I, I was getting ready to go to bed one night. And I just grabbed my iPhone and just made a video and said, all right, I'm going to give everyone, I can't remember what it was, I think $2,000 in the company. Everyone's got people. All I want to know is everyone email me and let me know what you're going to do with it. And I think we had, we have over 2,000 employees now. We probably had 1,100 employees then. I got 1,000 emails, which is the most response I've ever gotten from anything. And it wasn't because I said, hey, I'm, you're getting $2,000. Everyone's getting that whether they reply or not. But I think it was, hey, you care enough about what's happening with me. And I got some of the most amazing messages. Hey, I'm going to help my sister-in-law who just lost their job, or I'm going to give it to my neighbor, or I'm going to help my husband got laid off and I'm going to help with this or my wife, this happened. And it was really, I learned so much about the organization with a 30 second video and people were struggling. 
companies having success, don't wait till the end of year for a bonus, give some people some money to help people out. And it was absolutely fascinating to see all the different ways that people could help others out, knowing that we're pretty fortunate doing what we do. Yeah. And I think that was a, um, there was so much going on at the time that I think that people really wanted to step up and help all and any of those that were impacted. There were a lot of different things that were impacting people during that time, right? You know, families where, you know, kids were coming home from school and college and colleges shutting down. And there was just a lot of things that really needed to be taken care of. And I think people really stepped up and supported each other and organizations did also. Probably uh, today is we're still in it. Yeah. And how do we work through the we're fed up with this. I mean, it's, is it going to end? And maybe it's not going to end until our, our kids' generation. I don't know. But how do we continue to exist in this world? We have the Omicron variant now and you know, new rules on travel. And it, it is, we're going to continue to be in this challenged environment. And, and society is not reacting well. You see in the news, you know, the news has changed. People are frustrated acting out in ways that are just really sad. And you know, so how do we better if you look at mental illness, prescriptions for antipsychotics and for antidepressants are at record level. Yeah. And, and you're seeing the unfortunate side of that in, in society. So somehow we've got to find a way to, whether it's employees or communities, find better ways to deal with the situation we're in because it's not going to end. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that we, we went into a reaction mode and we've spent time in reaction mode, but I don't think we've spent time in living with mode right? How do we live with right now? And how do we make that work through a period of time? It's almost like we looked at it as before and after, and we skipped this period of figuring out how do we do the middle part. I do think that's created a lot of frustration. It also tests leaders. And we used to, one of our key tenants or skills that we look for in leaders is dealing with ambiguity. Well, we live in ambiguity now. Everything right. changes all right. the time. And, you know, so what was it? You know, it'd be nice if everyone had those skills. You can't actually survive without those skills in your personal life and now uh, at, at work where we make plans. Okay, in two months, we're going to go do this. Well, no, it's going to change in two months. So you actually have to be willing to really rethink and redo things in your life and your business uh, in very short cycles. If you were a leader in, in today's climate, which you are, what is one thing you would change to break the mold of corporate work culture. I think that there's nothing magical. I think if you treat people with respect, I, I think you know, what, what always amazes me is how people fear titles, people fear roles. And I think the more you treat people, I mean, we all, we're all the same here and no one's better than anyone else. And, and if you just operate that way and try to do the right thing for your employees, operate, hopefully you're operating that way in your personal life. Thing, if you do that at work, uh, we are who we are, whether it's at home or work, people aren't different. So I think that if you just try to do the right thing for people and treat people the right way and with respect and understand we all have good days and bad days and just work through things versus, you know, the typical hierarchical, you know, command and control environment. And I think that you're, you're going to be better for it. And so I don't know that there's There's no magical answer to any of this. It's just, you do more of the right thing and I think people enjoy working with you. I think that is an excellent closing answer. That wraps up to me everything you talked about earlier 
about how the organization began, your role in it, your role in bringing your people along and developing the culture you have. And underlying so much of that, I heard respect, 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 respect for the people who build the organization with you, respect for those that are patients, respect for those in the medical industry, respect for, I mean, you hit that, you didn't use that word all the way through, Tim, but in the way you spoke about really good point. One of the most key things to me, um, and it's probably when you have disease and those things, people who aren't, who come from a quote unquote different group, whether that's race or illness, respect is what you yearn for. So I think that comes through in the way you speak of all of the topics we spoke about. I want to personally thank you for the path you've been on and what that's allowed you to do for our community and for all of those who are helped by the, the medicines that you do develop and that come out of your organization for being willing to share your personal story years ago and then ongoing. It enables all the rest of us to tell our own personal stories and just for what you do in our community every day. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Sure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.